Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Fraud Boxer Podcast. This one is part two of two, uh, and I've got Diana back again. And actually, this is one that we are actually recording on a separate day from the first one. Normally on two-part series, you record the episodes all in one sitting. You split it into two and go. But this one, we actually are doing a real deal, having a whole other session <laughs> for this. So thank you once again for actually giving up more of your time on a whole different day. How are you doing today? I am doing very well. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me back. And um, this time I'm not dressed up. I don't have makeup on, so I don't look as good as I did first time. Not that they can see me, but still. It That's was really interesting because this was going to be the very first video one that we posted. So. Oh, wow. Uh, now, great. This yeah. is real deal for sure. <laughs> Diana in real time. Robe, pajama. So how was your weekend? Did you have a good weekend? You know, anything, anything crazy? Anything that we can tell the audience that might have been fun? It was actually interesting weekend, you know, so many Halloween parties and going to places. I actually went to a wine bar that had blues band playing. Oh, it was probably the best live music I ever heard in my life. Really? Yeah. Did you get the name of the band? Are they a local band? Are they a touring band? I think they're a local band called Mojo Blues Cats, something okay. like that. It's a very it was, blues band name right there. <laughs> it, it was amazing. Definitely, definitely amazing. And um, actually interesting that we started talking about that because um, you were just telling me you were having your guitar lesson. Yeah. So I, I really do. want to know more about that. Yeah. Um, so I guess this is kind of going to be an episode where you kind of talk about me and do a, this is what we're going to call a reverse interview, right? So you're going to be asking me <laughs> questions can. and we'll get we'll eventually get to the to how I got in this industry. But yes, I do play guitar. Um, I take guitar lessons religiously. Uh, I do twice a week. I do Tuesdays and Fridays. I meet with my guitar teacher and then I try, try is the keyword to uh, maintain a, a pretty decent practice schedule. You know, life gets in the way. We do have a podcast. I do have a day job. Um, I am a social person, so things get in the way, but I'm trying to work up. Um, there's a thing that people do in Nashville. Uh, if you ever, anybody's ever been there, a lot of the singer songwriters, if you go up like on some of the upper floors, um, there usually will be two songwriters up there and then they kind of want one plays one song one plays another song a lot of times it's covers but if you tip them well they'll play some of their original songs so i'm trying to work up to a spot where i'm able to play for a few hours at a time uh just a song oh. a song a song a song you know so i do a lot of practice in the backyard unfortunately when i do <laughs> uh, get the courage up to go and play in front of people in my backyard i've had a couple of cocktails um so it's not my best work uh, but we're getting better. I've been doing it. It's kind of my pandemic thing. I spent, um, I played a little bit lightly before, you know, like, like power chord stuff and all that. But this is one, like since the pandemic, we were all trapped inside. I started taking lessons and just keep going. I wanted to learn the theory, learn the reasons why behind like certain chord progressions, why ones work, ones don't, you know, major minor chords, you know, the scales, but those sorts. There's of things. that fraud mind getting into your guitar learning, learning. It probably like what, what is something the underlying works, reason but it doesn't yeah. work <laughs> what is the reason what type of music do you play um so right now i'm focusing a lot on americana so uh singer songwriters like zach bryan uh cody jink stuff um charles wesley godwin these are probably names that a lot of other people know i know zach bryan got really popular in the last year uh i've been a fan of his for a number of years actually flew to nashville earlier this year to go see him play the ryman uh right before he really exploded so now he's never going to play a venue like that again um, I do play like some punk rock stuff, like my buddies, uh, I'm pretty good friends with the guys that are in a punk band called Cigar. They were pretty popular in the 90s. They just put out a new record recently. It's an excellent record. So I've been trying to play that. However, they play really, really, really fast. So it's hard. So I actually <laughs> slow it down to like 75% when I play along. Um, I, I 
pretty much stick to those. I don't play anything like any crazy metal stuff. Um, I know like uh, Alexander Hall, he plays guitar too, and he he's a metalhead. Uh, <laughs> so we're we're trying to get the MRC band together. I actually uh, <laughs> I actually pinged uh, Julie together and asked for thirty minutes at the upcoming MRC to see if we could all play together. So we'll that see. would definitely be the she most visited session. <laughs> that would be fun, right? She said maybe before the 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 welcome thing. You know, maybe we get up on stage at the. Uh, at the happy hour um, in the in the conference center, like the actual thing. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a time, there's a place, there's an opportunity. I definitely think you guys should play it. And it seems to me that a lot of fraud fighters do have this creative side. So is that the only creative side you have or do you do anything else? Uh, I used to write. I was a writer. I was a blogger, that sort of thing. Not like a blogger that was like a political blogger or anything like that. More just I would write to write. Um, the blogs no longer exist, you know, but it was, it was fun. I always, when I originally was going to college, I wanted to be a writer. So I thought like it was, it was a lot of fun, a creative writing specifically telling stories, telling grandiose stories. Like, uh, I mean, believe it or not, that's why I have this personality that everything's just larger than life. Uh, I would tell stories that same way, very descriptive, uh, that would, I try to get the writer or the, the reader to feel, uh, that was something that, um, unfortunately, life got in the way because writing, unless you're writing books and novels, uh, is not going to really pay the bills. And I didn't really have the energy at the time to write a full novel. So the blogging was was kind of fun. And I, I did have a pretty good readership on that, several thousand, you know, when I did have them posted. Oh. Um, but that was a lot easier back in the MySpace days and those sorts of things <laughs> where it was uh, you could get a little wider audience. Now, now I'm a little more of a private person as far as like th those pieces of my life goes, like my industry persona is different than my personal persona. So, uh, you know, I think that's always the case for yeah. all of us. Yeah. So soon enough, we can expect a nice song about giraffes. Yeah, maybe maybe about I mean, giraffes. Let's combine um, all, of, all so, of your passions yeah. together. So I, I have a and couple you're gonna songs. Perform yeah. at MRC. I, I I will. I'll have a the, the tall neck song will be coming up here, you know. But uh, I I do have a couple of songs that I'm working on recording right now. I actually uh I was doing some recording a few weeks back, and uh, one of my guitars, my, my Taylor, was having some string buzz after some adjustments I did. So it had to go into the shop, but it's back now. So some recordings will be coming along, you know, especially with all this pro audio equipment that I got for this podcast. Uh, might as well make use of it in other ways as well, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? That's repurposing existing resources, isn't it? That's something that fraud fighters have in common yeah. with you, obviously. That's a, that's, that's a good point. Like a lot of times, you know, I can't get development resources to, to work on the project. So I try to find clever ways to to make the things work. And I do the same thing with budget. Like when I was at my last company, you know, obviously COVID restrictions had a, a lot to say about how much money I could spend. But I was having like laptops and stuff go down and I needed to get staff new laptops, but I didn't have budget to get them. So I was getting creative, like uh, I was sending out my backup laptop to people until we could get resources, always finding creative ways, you know, uh, to to get different information, finding if I can pull it from different databases that might already exist versus doing a whole new uh, API ingestion or, you know, whatever. I think be. that's that's one thing I always kind of talk about, um, besides, of course, cross-department collaboration, to reach out to those other departments and check what reports they already have, what processes they already have. So instead of reinventing a wheel just check what other reports they have you can kind of repurpose yeah. and use for whatever you need to do i know that um our customer service department is receiving regular reports on refunds and uh, refunds that are processed and, and and completed i actually just got into that report and use it for my refund fraud same information what, what a same small data world. I just, yeah so I, uh, you know, you and I did that KPI um, webinar, I think a, a few months back, we were talking kind of about, June, something. yeah, yeah, how we were 
different KPI things that we measure. And we were talking about different, like all sorts of different things. And I think the refunds part is something that's really interesting as well. Uh, at this company, you know, I, I've, I joined, it's coming up on my one year mark, you know, but it took a while to really get acclimated and, and get my lay of the land here. Um, I think one of the, the, the things that I have, when I ask for things, it's, it's usually somebody else has a report. So we use Tableau here for our internal reporting. And with Steve on my team specifically, I'm like, hey, do we have a refund report? Are we tracking those? And he's like, actually, yeah, here we are. You yeah. know, yes. or do we have a customer service contacts or all these little things that that I've asked so far? Somebody at some place has made it. And I'm fortunate that this company doesn't lock the tableaus down to like individual departments or individual people so I can actually access them. You know, at other places I've had a little more trouble getting to those reports. So that way I don't have to use BI to build me out new reports. Uh, I usually just have access to the information I need. Yeah, I always said um, nine times out of 10, report already exists. It's, it's made, probably not used, obviously not used for, but you are going to use it. But the data exists, report exists, just reach out to the right people. And I have Steve too. I mean, it's not Steve, her name is Erin, and she's been with my company for so long and knows the company inside out, knows everyone and every a program we use, every software you use. So every time I need something, she can get it within a few minutes. It's so amazing. It's great to have you both. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been fortunate. I've just, as you were saying, I was thinking back to like my, my last few companies, I've always had like that one person that's been there for a really long time. That's like my right hand, my go-to that helps me like actually navigate. And as one of the guys here at this company told me, like makes my world a lot smaller here, which is super helpful to have, you know? So yeah. Uh, fi find, find your person at your company, everybody. <laughs> find your person that makes your world smaller and, and teaches you where to go and, and how to find everything. So yeah. Yes. And Reports do exist. Just find them. Yes, they do. So talking about small world, we always talk about how our fraud world is very small and how I think I probably know 90% of fraud fighters in the world at this point. Um, how did you get into this world and how long actually you've been in fraud fighting industry? Yeah. Um, so I think I started kind of probably late 2010 was when I kind of fell into the fraud fighting world, as much of us do. Um, I had a whole life before this, several lives, it seems like, before I ever got into fraud. And it was kind of a, a weird opportunity. So before this, I actually started my life as a men's buyer for a chain of retail stores. And I think I talked about that on another episode. So for a number of years, um, I was buying what would be considered like surf, skate, and, and motocross apparel. So like Fox, um, Volcom, those sorts of things. So I was a buyer for a chain of retail stores, specifically picking out the men's lines and the high, the high dollar, high volume lines. So the ones that we had the most sales on in our stores. And I was doing that for a long time and I really, really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. The pay wasn't super great at the time for me, uh, but I was doing this up in Oregon and I wasn't always really excited about living in Oregon. So I had been wanting to probably move on to what, what, what people would call greener pastures um, down in California. So I, um, I was looking around at the same time, kind of talking to some of those companies about opportunities that they might have down here to be like an inside sales rep, which were like a lot of times that people that I would deal with at those companies. But um, it just so happened uh, as, as fate would have it, like I ended up dating somebody who had a place in Oregon and a place down here um, with her family. And that family had an opportunity for me to work at their software company that they had owned. 
and kind of working on special projects like doing video editing um just little little projects that like they, that they would have the, the father was very entrepreneurial i mean it was his company that he had founded it was like his third one and they were all very successful so he kind of like took me under his wing and helped me develop my ideas into, into real things. So I was helping with special projects, I moved down here, uh, ended up starting my own skateboard company. It was called Ravage Skateboards at the time. And we had a pretty good run uh, for a really long time selling skateboards. I was using the my connections and my leverage from the, the industry that I was in previously as a buyer to have my skateboards manufactured at a very large facility. It was a, a company called Dwindle Distribution that they um, were owned by Globe Shoes. Uh, actually down here in, in El Segundo. And they were making my skateboards at their factory with my logos. I was doing heat transfer logos on there. Um, I was paying artists, hiring artists to, to make me logos. I was doing all the graphics artists for like cards and things uh, to like hand out, running competitions. I was running the uh, the actual team. Um, and I was doing guerrilla marketing uh, for getting my items into the stores. So how it would kind of work is one of the special projects that I worked on was my, my girlfriend at the time was was a singer. And uh, she was on a major label, actually. And the label, it was right at the weird time in the music industry where like not a lot of sales were happening. So the labels weren't investing a ton of money in, in their marketing pushes for their new unproven artists. So the label had kind of worked with us a little bit to help use MySpace as a marketing platform for them. MySpace so we, again? Yeah. So the her <laughs> father had the company, was was they were all tech companies. So he had built a script that we were able to use against MySpace using the the data that we had pulled from MySpace. Um, MySpace allowed us to crawl there. Well, they didn't knowingly allow us to crawl it, but their robots.txt said we could. So we pulled back all of the, the demographic data for about the first 150 million profiles. And then we used that to advertise her accordingly. So by city, by age, by other likes and all of that. And we were able to, to successfully move her career along forward. However, after that we stopped doing that project with the label when she got big enough, I then took that same information and applied it to my skateboard company. So what I would do is I would visit a skate shop and I would talk to the, the, the owner of that shop and say, hey, would you put my boards up here? And usually they'd say no, because they've never heard of me before, clearly. Uh, and I would then go onto MySpace and I'd pull down their friends list. And then I would add everybody on that friends list. And then I would, if they accepted, if they chose to, I would then drop a digital version of my sales flyer on their page, like on their comments. And say, ask for it at, and then whatever that local shop was. And it would usually create enough buzz that that, that person would call me and I put my boards in. Now, granted, if, I mean, this is going to be a long story. Just buckle in, everybody. This is a Jordan episode. But uh, this is all about Jordan. It really is. But using my knowledge from the industry, I was very conscious about the pricing that I had on my skateboard. So skateboards usually costed at the time about 50 to $60, depending on the brand that you were buying. And usually the store would buy those skateboards for $36. So the the margin on those boards was razor thin. And if you put them in like some sort of package, then you'd usually discount the boards down to like 40 bucks. So your $4 profit plus the shipping that you had to have to get it to you usually was never going to make enough money. So I was able to manufacture my boards at a price point that I was able to sell them to the stores for $25 that they could then sell at an MSRP of $50. So they could get a full 50% margin. And I myself at the price point that I was manufacturing them was making them an over a 50% margin. So I was nice. able to get a pretty good like end-to-end -end sales thing going as far as profitability goes. But what happened at the end of it all is we were we were doing we were moving some boards. We were moving several thousand boards at the time. Uh I really liked the team. I really liked the name. I really liked my art. I loved what we were doing. It was 
taking a lot of hours, but it was one of those things that like it was more fun than it was work, you know. So I was I was you proud of the work doing that we were it. Doing. Yes. Yeah, but unfortunately, the economy died at that time because that was about two thousand nine. So we started dying in eight, but in two thousand nine, people stopped buying luxury items. Um, so not a lot of skateboards, especially skateboards for companies that they didn't really know that well. So kind of had to pivot, and then I had pivoted into um doing call center work because that I needed, <laughs> I needed healthcare because I have a couple of medical conditions. I have ulcerative colitis is one of them. And I also have a liver issue, but uh, that's being sorted out by UCLA. I think we have a wrong diagnosis on my initial one. So I'm going to live forever, everybody. But <laughs> lucky the, you. Uh, yeah, right. But uh, one of those call centers, um, well, there was T-Mobile, there was Apple, and then there was uh, Netflix that I worked at. And this was probably late 2010, early 2011. And I was doing regular customer service calls, billing calls, all those things. And it was right when um, instant watching, what we used to call it at the time, was becoming popular. So a lot of learning curve for people that weren't used to streaming content online, uh, using things like Nintendo Wii's, using uh, old Blu-ray players that they used to have, and the TVs hadn't really had it built in yet. Um, Roku was just starting. So a lot of people were calling in for technical issues, trying to, to figure out how to do it. But one of the days um, in my 130 calls I would take in a shift, one of those days, I, about every other call was somebody saying, what is Netflix? I've never heard of it. I have it on my credit card statement. I put in their information and up would pop the same single account every single time. Hogar oh. Duncan. I'll never forget that guy. Hogar Duncan. But as we kept going through this, I was fortunate that the, the call center that I was working at actually had the research department in, in the back. So I was able to go back to the research department and sit down with some of the people that I knew in that department. And we started looking at these accounts and we discovered that what was happening is that we had just switched to a $0 authorization and there was no CAPTCHA and no barrier of entry. So what had happened is somebody had grabbed a list of credit cards, thousands and thousands, thousands of them, and was hitting this list against our $0 authorization to test the cards to see what was happening? Uh, were they good? Were they bad? And since they could just hit us again and again and again, when there was no barrier of entry, like there is on a lot of other yeah. sites at the time, I mean, I'm sure that's a lot has changed since then. You know, this was very early in, in this world. Yeah. Um, we were able to determine and, and figure out and, and stop that from happening. And that was something that that was like my first dip my toe into what this world is. Yeah. I was just about to ask, was this your first official fraud case? The it really was. Solved. It really was. That was how. And the rest how, is history. Huh? Yeah. So then I, I came, I actually <laughs> wanted to move back to LA. I came back to LA. I told that same story in an interview for a customer service job at Fandango. They said they had literally the same problem happening. And I oh, was wow. like, I was like, well, let me do what I did. And I did. And, and now we're, the rest is history. <laughs> so if I would ask you, what is your most interesting fraud case? Would that be the one? Or uh, do you no. have anything else that you want to share that is? Oh, no, no, no. I have one um, that I can talk about because it was on the news. But um, I was at Fandango years and years and years ago. And there I was worked pretty closely with the with Dan from AMC Theaters. He's still a friend of mine. I just saw him in Nashville when I was there in February, had lunch with him. He's a great dude. Um, and AMC Theaters is a great company. I can't say enough great things about the people and the, the staff over there. So I want to get that out of the way. Uh, but they were having an unfortunate problem way back, I think in probably 2014, uh, maybe even 2013, where they had a, a young man who was taking plastic water bottles and filling them with a acid-like substance and during uh, large movie premieres would toss it into the front. And this was shortly after um, the Colorado oh, wow. Aurora, Colorado shooting. So people were hypersensitive about being in movie theaters. 
So he would throw this and it would explode, pop, and gas. You know, one person got some spilled on them and caused some skin irritations. But he was doing this again and again and again. And um, so AMC was kind of at a loss about what to do because they didn't have really any data. You know, like you don't have a whole lot of data about who, the what, the why. Uh, so they sent over. So Dan called me and was like, could you possibly help us? And then he told me some of the theaters that it was happening at. And I ran some queries on our database and was able to locate a single account that had made purchases at, I believe it was eight um, out of seven. So he sent me a list of seven. And I was like, are you sure it's seven? And he's like, okay, there is one more that we haven't talked about. And it, it, was, it wasn't it was just AMC. It was other theaters that he was doing the set too. It was some Cinemark stuff as well. Uh, and I was able to have him engage law enforcement with me at that point. I said, um, the there's actually the Secret Service was involved in that particular one. Uh, and oh, wow. Yeah, because it was domestic terrorism. So yeah. uh, in in theory, so they were able to subpoena me. It was like the middle of the night when they finally got the subpoena and the judge came through on it. Uh, and I was able to give them the information and it actually resulted in an arrest. So if you look at Bottle oh, wow. Bombers, AMC Theaters on your Google, you will find, kind of read through the story. Um, the young man, they, they made an example of him and he, they arrested him and he will spend, I believe the next like 20 something years in jail. Oh, uh, wow. So that was the one like where it all happened like really fast. Like it was, I, I ran a good query and my first try, I was able to locate the individual and we did it all by the book. We, we went through the correct legal channels and I would say within 24 hours of, of me getting the phone call to, he was in handcuffs. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. And then wouldn't you know it, the bottle bombing stopped. So I got the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> you did get the right guy, obviously. It is so interesting. I mean, um, in this world, how often we actually do get to cross into not just digital space, but like a brick and mortar space, especially yeah. in, in my um, in my job. We do work a lot with the store LP and the kind of connected dots and not maybe making arrest in our case, but yeah. definitely to catch some of these fraudsters, some of the abusers. One of the cases I actually worked on, I think, I'm not sure if I shared it ever before in any of the webinars or podcasts, but it was funny that somebody in the company where I worked committed a crime of re return fraud, like, you know, made a return to their credit card. But the system was set up in a way that you could actually pick any employee name um, as when you're completing the return, like you should pick your name that you're completing this return or refund, but you could pick any. So you could, this, like, this is like the person that's logged in. So the, the, what's meant yeah. to audit who's actually processing the return, you could put it under somebody else. Correct. So you go in, you get the phone call, customer says, I didn't get it, whatever. It was 10, 15 years ago. And you would um, create the refund request. You would complete the refund, but you could put any credit card in there without any restrictions. As we know right now, you can only return to the original you know, form of payment. And you could not only pick whatever credit card and enter the credit card number, you could actually pick any name off of the employee list and say that this person actually completed refunds. So there was a person who was continuously doing these refunds to her credit card, but was unfortunate enough to put my name in there. Oh, so you got hauled your ass in. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was interesting. But what was really interesting that she doesn't, she didn't know who I am. She didn't know I was the one that gets these cases to investigate them. And I wasn't actually processing any returns or refunds or anything. It wasn't, it wasn't what I did. So I wouldn't even know how to process it at the time. So I started getting these cases. I'm like, 
actually one of my friends started getting them first she was like are you were you here last saturday i'm like no i was with my children my children were very little at the time um she said well there are several refunds uh completed with your name but they went to a different credit card other than customer's credit card it was yeah i think it was for hugo boss about two thousand dollars refunds at that point so um yeah this person was unfortunate enough to do it with my name which probably if it was someone else's name we could have even accused them incorrectly because we wouldn't have way of knowing that that person didn't really complete the refund so when we started researching a little bit more calling the banks on the credit cards to see um who the credit card matches to we actually had the list of employees who were working that day we took their names and addresses and then we called the bank for address verification and matched to the address of the person who actually did process the refund. interesting uh, you know how you do we used to do avs match yeah. We would call and you would type in the number or just read the number to the bank on the phone. So we took all of the employees that worked that day. We took their home addresses and we were reading, trying to match what phone, what address is matching that credit card. And they we actually told you that? The bank actually told you that? No, that's a merchant. <laughs> uh, that, that's how it used to be. I oh, you did a merchant. Uh, you'll use the you merchant the service. Merchant, yeah. yeah so you were just service. calling like Bank of America and saying, hey, yeah, does, yeah, uh, yeah, no. John Smith live at this? <laughs> we we used to do this as a yeah. part of our that's job. You, like on the last episode. Yeah, that you were yeah. talking about. Yeah. But this was actually a different company. It was a company a few uh, years after that. But that service still existed. At that point, we already had AVS and everything. But we remembered that you could do this over the phone. So we took all available addresses for our employees that were working that Saturday. We called the bank, like several different calls, several different AVS attempts. And we finally matched the number to the credit card. And we knew who was actually there. We knew who was who did it. So I actually ended up in court as a witness. And one of the people there asked me, why should we believe that it isn't you who did this? I'm like, first of all, I wasn't there. Second, I have proof where I was that day at that time. And third, I spent more than... 40 hours a week on average trying to stop people from doing this. Why would I compromise myself over $1,200 or $2,000? So it was interesting that this person did actually end up in jail, but for many other things she had yeah. done. But yeah. I have a, I have one more because I, I think I think people go, are always sure. just a sucker for a, for a good like fraud story that isn't, isn't even necessarily hear. fraud you know but like there was another one it was again um when I was back in my Fandango days I was a little more involved with law enforcement back then but uh we had somebody that was doing just a, a regular triangulation scheme but it was uh, a little bit different in the fact that it was like an in person one so they were using stolen credit cards to buy the inventory and then standing outside of the movie theaters um, to actually physically sell the tickets cash to another person and uh, to like an unsuspecting person, and that person would scan. And at that, that point, like at, at Fandango, we didn't really cancel the tickets at the time. You know, it was it's a different type of business than it is with like with larger tickets. But um, this particular guy, he was doing it in the Chicago area. There was three three specific theaters that he would always target. So I would just look for it. He'd use his own name, and I would just like look for it, you know, and see see that he was. I, I, he's probably using his own name because he probably which have to show that he was the owner of these tickets when he was probably standing outside. I don't know what he was yeah. doing it, but anyways, he was doing it and we actually got him arrested one night. Um, and I was, again, I think Dan was helping me out with that one. I think he was boots on the ground there because he lived there at the time, but uh, that guy got out of jail and like started doing it again the next night. Like he didn't, <laughs> didn't even learn stop. the lesson. Yeah, obviously. not at all. And he was just right back out there. And it's just another one of those, like, just laugh. I think that it's 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 interesting, these stories, like we tell these stories and it it has to do with what we do, but it doesn't at the yeah. same time, you know? It's not like what our normal thing is, but these are like the, the ones that stick out. I know like Tim Russo has always like told some really interesting like in-person stories 
Uh, so if you ever see him at a conference, anybody grab him and, and ask him about some of the old stories that he has about catching fraudsters. Um, they're very interesting. <laughs> I think catching fraudsters was, or these fraud cases in the past were much more interesting. I have to say right now, it, they seem to be much more automated and maybe yeah. a person is removed because they're using all these software. They're using technology against yeah, us technology. now. Yeah. It's not as, not as just one guy in a room anymore, but you know? But it definitely, definitely in the past, it was much more interesting, I have to say. I know that I once talked to one of the Ghanaian princes. Is that how you say it? You know, one of those princes from Ghana who are sending me a lot of money. As a part of my job, I actually called and um, I, I gave my cell phone and I pretended to be a person that will work with them and reship stuff to, to their um to their house so it was really interesting um to work with them and it was really um interesting working with law enforcement to provide this information and kind of pretend to be someone that i was not so i guess i was proud of yeah well, you know we gotta but do yeah. what we have to do right yeah and and it's um the, there, there are tons of stories and i'm sure that you have hundreds of stories too so is this what you most like about the industry or is there something else uh, I, I don't know. What else? I, I don't know what it is I like about this industry specifically. It's just I really enjoy, I think, the investigative aspect of, of our jobs entirely. Now, granted, like the last few years, it hasn't been so much of, of me doing the investigations. I'm a little more hands off on that. Uh, my staff is the one that that's moving up into doing more the, the hands-on, writing the rules, um, those sorts of things. And I take a more of an administrative position and a more strategy position looking at our five tenure. Um, how we want to run the software, what software we're going to use, working with our vendors a lot more, which I, of course, I love um, what most people call bullshitting. Uh, I enjoy it very much. But uh, it's, I think overall, the industry, just just watching watching it change, watching it grow, but still having all of this investigation and learning the new things. I really love to watch and learn the new things that people are up to. And I, and I don't know, like, I mean, I, I spent some time when I was in the, the fashion industry, clearly I got, I went to conferences, I did those sorts of things. Um, even when I was at the software company for a little while, I still would go to like some of the Microsoft uh, conferences, but, and you know, they all have parties, they all have happy hours, they all do those sorts of things. But I think at our fraud industry, you know, especially with how how it, it started and, and I was here towards the more relative beginning of, of it at scale, um, it's it's a lot more personal to me. So it feels like something that that I I really am a, an actual part of. And that's why I think I like to yeah. be involved in it quite a bit, you know, but it's just it, it's whatever it is about this industry. And I, I don't know if I can always necessarily place my finger on it, but it just it it, it touches me in all the places that that, that I like to be touched. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> it, it, it it's really something that I enjoy doing. And it's it's I could go out and, and have cocktails even on a, on a non-work thing and just talk about fraud all night, talk about the different schemes, you know, much like we're doing right now, just having yeah. a conversation. Like we came into this, this particular episode right here with a very loose framework and we're just kind of free, free flowing right now and just yeah. letting it go. And I think that we, it's, it's things that we both like and we can just talk about because of whatever it is about this industry, whatever it might be. <laughs> I think it's dynamic of the industry that I enjoy the most. And I think that's probably what most of the people that do it, we all have similar, similar personalities. It's how fast it changes, like you said. And I also think how fast you can see the results of your work. That's, that's true. It is very satisfying. Yes, yeah. it's very satisfying. Because I used to work for banking industry and I was in fraud, but things there take forever. Um, and I think we talked about this before. So, um, 
it is very satisfying to see all these results and see the kind of a result of all of your work. In, yeah. If you really deploy rule, faster, like yeah. you can see yeah, the, yeah. the very it's next it. attempt, you know, and it's, it's super satisfying when like, you're like, got him, you know, and then he, of course he's going to try and change, but it's also yeah, super alarming when you, uh, when you mess up an if or an and statement and then all, next thing you know, you blocked all iPhone uh, traffic for <laughs> oh, an hour. I've done, I've done, I've done that. that. I've done that. <laughs> I, bl I blocked Yahoo population from using site once. Yeah, it's probably a better for them company. at the end of the day. <laughs> it, it was sometime, quite some time ago. So I think Yahoo was still very popular and people were using, a lot of people were using that email. But instead of blocking one particular email, I made a mistake and blocked the domain. So it was one of those moments that like a day later, I'm driving somewhere and it just pops in my head, like, what have I done? So I went back to work and <laughs> fixed it. But it wasn't a lot of people that were impacted, maybe 70, but it was a small company. So in 70 so customers, it was, yeah. was like 50% of their work. Oh, wow. it, it was it was quite interesting. But yes, <laughs> we all have, we've done that. Um, so I know that we talked about if you didn't do fraud, uh, what else you would do. But is there any side of fraud industry that you haven't worked in and you would like to kind of explore more into that? Not just fraud, hmm. but financial crime overall. Yeah. Cyber crime. That's an excellent question. Good job on that one. Um, see, I wasn't yeah. on the list. Uh, I have <laughs> I have been doing a lot of payments lately and a lot more payments than I've done. And I and I I did a lot of payments in the past. Like I've always been involved in the payments at my companies and and some of the bigger companies to a pretty high level. I didn't actually even realize how high of a level until I started going to payments specific conferences versus just fraud conferences. But um, I'm really enjoying as I've get really into the weeds on payments. So right now, obviously at my company, we are a um, very international presence. Like mo uh, we don't do very much business in the US. Most of our business is international. So doing a lot of, of work around like FX, uh, doing a lot of work around like currency conversions overall, uh, cur currency settlements, cross-border stuff. This has been really, really, really interesting for me. Like, you know, a lot of the companies that I've worked at have been primarily US-based or the division that I worked in was was US-based. So to really have this this international piece of it has is, is really ignited a, a quite a, a new passion as far as the payments go. So um, I have to say like a lot of the payments is has been a lot of fun. It's It's more... Like the fraud stuff, you know, we've we've been solving pretty good with technology and staying on top of that has been has been fun, but it's not as challenging as it was in the past because now we finally have software that's smart enough to help us stay ahead of the curve for the most part. Um, but I have also been super interested and in, I'm trying to find the way to to break into it the right the right way because it is a full-time gig, but but head more into like the full-on security side. Um, so ATOs is, is usually where where the fraud teams start to dip their toes into the security side um, and now doing things like account create prevention based on like criteria around what the the overall session that's trying to create it. But I think the full blown infosec stuff is super interesting to me, too. I'm just not there yet. So I, I'm glad you actually mentioned that, because I believe that in order to, in order to be able to handle fraud successfully, you have to look at that end to end um transaction life cycle or i always talk about customer journey yeah. you have to be able to have a holistic approach to everything so everything from the i always say from the moment customer touches your site until the moment customer calls in and says i didn't get it or the customer service or whoever processes that refund request and did not receive requests so i think you have to look at the entire 
picture yeah. to be able to know exactly where your risk is and to be able to take this more proactive approach. Um, otherwise, you will always miss something. And I think one good thing you said is you're exploring something else because credit card fraud or traditional fraud is handled much better with technology yeah. right now. And I think we are a type of people that do not like to be bored. And That's if exactly right. machine learning is handling credit card, okay, what else, what else is out there that I can handle? And that's exactly how I went into account takeovers or account security and policy abuse and refund fraud, because I was constantly looking for, is there something else there that I may have been missing? And I have I think, found quite a few things. <laughs> yeah. And I think that as we take away the monetization that's available for, for fraudsters on to do credit card fraud and carding against our sites, uh, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to go away. Like, granted, we want them to go away, but that doesn't mean they're going to not look for other ways to monetize your site. And that's where we come into like this abuse prevention stuff is like if you have rewards programs or you have gift cards, uh, there's going to be ways that people try to abuse your site. If you have like any sort of way that you can do any sort of monetization that isn't yeah. just transactional, there's probably going to be a way that somebody can monetize it. But people need to remember that they also have data. They also have customer data that's valuable somewhere. If you have stored credentials, you know, COF, you're going to have people that might be interested in, in gaining that. So that's where it comes into the security thing. It's just because you 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 solve transactional fraud doesn't necessarily mean you you mitigated risk. You're on your safe, website. yes. Yeah, like yes. and I, and I think like bot prevention. You know, Papa Elon has uh has very much brought bots <laughs> to the the to regular people out there. But those are things that we've been working on for a long time. When you have companies like Perimeter X and Human, well now they're the same thing, trying yes. to solve that. You know, always have your CDNs. I've always been trying to to solve bot stuff, but. I think as like the bots are a problem that people don't necessarily realize. And we don't just mean bots that are scripting your site and buying things, but bots that are trying to do DDoS attacks against you, trying to, to, to penetrate accounts, do brute force logins. These are yeah. things that I think that other, as, as the monetization on the fraud side goes away, there's still risk there for monetization of your data elsewhere. So. Oh, absolutely. Bots that are creating accounts, I think that's always something that's being missed. And if you have any rewards, any welcome rewards or birthday code yep. or any type of promotion or any type of gift at the opening account, you certainly have bots opening these accounts and opening, opening it up yep. at high level. So definitely there is a lot of risk out there. And I think that's probably what keeps us going. Just being so. able to. There's always something. That are, they, oh, they, I, I always say fraud is like a balloon. Once you squeeze it on one end, another end will pop up. There's going to be something that will not go away. <laughs> they may stay quiet a little bit and move on to the different company and exploit that, but eventually they will be coming back. So it's best to be ready. So um, I know what you like, or we know a little bit what you like about company. What is it that you would like to change about the industry, not company? Sorry. Yeah, the industry. Um... I think the industry overall. What is it is missing? What do yeah. you think it's missing? Oh, I mean, I think it's headed in a, in a positive direction. I think the MRC is doing some great things around um, certifications because, like, we've only really had the CFE for a really long time, and uh, I think that with the MRC trying to do a uh, an actual certification program that's going to be like an alternative to that, it's going to really help with like there's this education directly in our field. We never had education directly in our field before. Now a lot of us have have done panels. Um, and, and, and contribute to the education of our peers. Uh, you know, you and I have been on on several panels, so so we contribute to that that education. But putting some framework around that will will be really cool. So because because sometimes on the panels, you know, you you don't really always know like what is actually going to come out at the end, you know, and what's been truthful and what's not been. Like I've I've been very much the panels even very recently that uh, 
that didn't have any sort of well checking of the the data and i there was very much in a, in a main session on a keynote there was some wrong information that was supplied and thankfully most of the people in the audience were able to understand that that was bullshit and that <laughs> you know it was done but yeah i think and you even mentioned on the last one that like you're working on your own training course too yes. you know so i think so you understand the education piece as well yes my training will more be around more, more be it's going to be more around understanding where the risk is and uh, how to identify these risks in the entire life cycle of that transaction and how to measure what you are supposed to measure, you know, how to measure your approval rate, because it is kind of a portion that there are so many people out there that are fraud managers, but they've never been told how to truly measure this approval rate um, yeah. and or how to measure your chargeback rate. What are the other risks of second chargeback? So pre-arbitration, when you should go after it, when not, and uh, how to kind of understand what are your risks and what you should truly be chasing after instead of spending your time maybe just focusing on those charges which we always talk we always talk about yeah. how else you can kind of a post chargeback world <laughs> yeah no more chargebacks or yeah not focusing so much more on chargebacks um so how did the industry change besides just certification how do you think it changed in the last few years or in the last decade I mean yeah, I would say uh, granted a lot more people care about it and learn about it and talk about oh, it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, then tons of money being thrown into it. You know, back when I started, there was only a few main companies. You know, you had like your certifier, your threat metrics. Uh, Iovation was still a big thing and count. You know, those were those were the main ones. And then there was all sorts of little things that were like that were like off to the side of it. You know, you had Ethica was starting up at the time. Verify had been around for a little while offering things that like like step up products, you know, um, White Pages Pro was was very much in its infancy and they've grown into their own monster. But now we have all these other new companies, you know, that are solving with technology. I think like SIF Science kind of really ushered in that that, that new technology level. Um, so a lot more people, like I think that like ha there hadn't been a lot of focus on fraud. Like not like every company didn't have a fraud person before. And now they do. You know, like you had some finance people or some customer service people that were working chargebacks, these these costs of doing business, as we always say. But now every company has like dedicated people and staff to doing these things and everybody has a tool. And now that you're, you mentioned some of these vendors, I don't think it's so much case right now, but several years ago, maybe three years ago, I started to feel that industry or the, the space is getting a little bit oversaturated yes. with a bunch of these solutions. Everybody had and, the same idea at once. Yes, like. <laughs> yes, yes. And and everybody had the same story and kind of same sales pitch. And it, it became really exhausting to kind of go so, through all of these to find them. So how do you feel about that right now? Yeah, I don't I think it's getting better, but there is it is. So there I is mean, a risk of that stuff to that as well. But we'll there's well, yeah, that. NSA. Uh there's consolidation, you know, that happened that I think was was necessary, but I also think was was scary at the same time. Exactly. Um the so what I what I usually do is especially if I if I join a new company and, and they're like wanting an evaluation of their fraud tools, or if I do ever do any consulting and they want a, a overview of the market, I usually lump the products and the vendors that are currently in the space into categories. So you have, there are three specific categories. There's like your full managed mm -hmm. solution where you, you as you have to have a full-time person doing it, writing rules. Like they, you don't just, there's no set it and forget it. This ain't Ronco. You got to be in the tool every day, writing your <laughs> rules, looking at your orders and, and, and making it work. And then there's the, the semi-automated solutions, you know, which, which kind of, uh, do most of the heavy lifting for you, you know, but you can put business logic over the top of it. And that's like, you know, 
I'm trying to find a way to put it, but there's, there's, you can kind of guide it. So I think Sif Science is a really good example of that, where like they do, they give you a score based on their own machine learning, but then you can put your own parameters to have the, the, the item actually, the, the transaction actually live and breathe within. So you can set, you know, quantity limits and, and, and velocity limits based on what you want and all those so sorts add of add business things. rules of yeah, leverage machine of learning it. and also have business rules yeah and then there's like your riskifieds your signifieds and your forders where it's like it's a hands-off solution like it's just going to do what it does and you can put your own business logic in and you can ask them to whitelist or, or negative list things but there are consequences of that if you do that and um you know in, inside kind of in that same in same area there's there's the other tools you know the identity verification tools the the chargeback answering tools you know so i guess there's kind of like a fourth bucket but those aren't really fraud tools yeah so when you when you really put every all these pieces in into like their boxes you kind of get an idea of the landscape but i will say there's getting to be less and less boxes you had companies like ns8 which was just trying to be a big scam and money grab uh that kind of is kicked out of there if you have a lot of consolidation where, where companies are getting bought and and putting them in like you'll see like um simility was it was a tool and then uh, PayPal Braintree bought them and then integrated them into their own services. So it's not really a standalone tool anymore. It's kind of just not a thing. But you have all of of these these consolidation that's happening where the the, the big players like the the micro the the uh, not Microsoft the uh, Mastercards <laughs> and the, the the Visa started buying up their tools. Yeah. Equ Equifax, you know, buying Count. So the all these but there was a danger with that too. There is. I, like, I think I, there's a danger. You know, is there going to be enough competition between them to invest yeah. and improve these services? Well, I think like you'll you'll see companies like Visa right now starting to ne not necessarily but but necessarily mandate use of these products that they've purchased, which yeah, could be true. that could be scary. Like if they bought something that I didn't necessarily think was was the right fit for me, but now they're mandating it. Um, I don't really see how that could benefit me. I'd like to. Like, I always say I, I want the menu approach. I'd like to be able to see all of my offerings, but I'd like to be able to pick what I want to eat from the restaurant, you know? So so just back to the categories, and I think that's something that I will definitely address in my training, um, and I wanted to share that. Um, I also noticed a lot of um, fraud professionals do not really have full understanding of what type Ooh, of yes. service some of these vendors are providing. So I have different categories. I mean, I, I understand yours, but I have like identity authentication and verification category, actual fraud screening category, and um, alerting category. And mm -hmm. then you have chargebacks, which is the fourth one. Yeah, so I think every time you do this service evaluation, you have to kind of understand what um, group, what category does it fit into. And that's not to say that your identity authentication vendor cannot help you manage fraud. And screen fraud, it can, but it's not specifically it's, doing that. It's, it's yeah, that's not what its original purpose was meant for. And you see, like, I, I think, like, there's certain tools that are, are getting close to having that. Like, they come with a score and everything. So if that was all you could afford, I guess you could you could kind of use it like that. But yeah. I think that some of the costs on some of those can be higher. Um, yeah. So I think it, there should be a little bit more talk around, not maybe today, not between you and I, but there should be a little bit more information around where these companies what type of category these companies fall into and what they can help you resolve you could probably use it in some other ways and help it can help you with some other risk management pieces but identity solution is doing exactly that is authenticating or verifying validating that identity it's not screening for credit card fraud 
Yeah, um, and I think you miss a lot on the on the behavioral piece too. If you only have this one piece, that's why if you step back and you look at like a holistic like transaction, you know, then then you get a, a clearer picture of what it is. If you just look at one tiny piece and you focus on one tiny piece, you might be missing something. You might you might wind up with more false positives or false negatives even. So, this I, I know that's also interesting. That uh, for example, Ethica, you mentioned Ethica. I've been using Ethica forever, even in my previous companies. But I hardly ever use it as a alerting uh, system because my fraud screening vendor does a great job. I really don't have that many alerts that yeah. it's helping me. And you know, by because we're fully automated, by the time I get it, I usually, it's usually gone. But it helped me numerous times identify some potential fraud rings, or it gives me new trends that I identify by just looking. The, the time of yeah. receiving these alerts, the amount, some trends and patterns within them that helped me identify some new fraud rings, some new fraud trends. So, you know, it wasn't intended to identify new trend, but it definitely well, helped. Well, I mean, it, so. I think that it definitely, for, for them specifically, and I, I think even Verify does it too, for people that don't really read their TC40 data, if they're using, if they're leveraging 3D Secure, like people that don't properly ingest it or people that don't just look at it. Like there's a lot of people that don't. There's a lot of people that don't even know what TC40 and safe data is. But using an, a tool like like Ethica, you could still see those alerts coming in. Even if you don't have like a financial liability for it, you could still see them happening. And that might be trends that you were missing because you just were just letting 3D secure. You're, you're hoping, you're blissfully ignorant of what was actually happening because you, you're letting your financial liability be moved. And I think that look, those alerts definitely did that. Um, I mean, I know a lot of companies that that like have no idea what they have 3D secured on and they have no idea. What, what do you mean? Like, I could see what's actually being claimed, you know, <laughs> I don't have to pay for it. So what does it matter? It still matters. Like you're still your merchant account is still on the hook, you know, even if you don't have to pay the dollars for it, you're still on the hook for compliance. And yeah. I think a lot of people forget that. We do get alerts and uh, we do get some great information from there. Um, but most of the time. My screening vendor is already declining it because we are fully automated. It's really decision was made right then and there. So customer maybe sees the authorization and calls and files the claim. We get the alert, but it's already declined. However, it's still helping us determine some of these trends. It's helping us share information with our fraud vendors. So I think, like, I just wanted to say that some of these vendors can be very purpose for some other um, things and manage some other type oh, of yeah. risk um, if you just know how to use it appropriately. So I know you and I talked about training because there is a lot more training. There is a lot more information out there. Uh, I, there's much more visibility into fraud industry and what and what all fraud vendors can do. But I know we talked about job postings oh, yes. on, fraud managers, on fraud positions. And I think it's a very interesting topic because I still don't think that there is enough understanding in an industry what a job entails and yeah. what should be required. So you want to share your thoughts about yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think right now is a really interesting time because obviously a lot of, there's a lot of layoffs happening, which is super sad. Um, and I would say not a lot of fraud people seem to be getting layoffs, but there are a couple that I've seen out there. But I will say that the companies that are hiring people for fraud positions, especially high level positions like senior director level positions or director level positions or quote head of. Um, don't necessarily have a clear idea. It appears um, to what they're looking for, because I know some companies that have had job postings open, very popular companies that had job postings open for six, eight, nine months, and uh, they still haven't filled those. And I know personally people that have applied for those positions 
that were declined those positions. And I know three of them on, on one big one that's still up right now were beyond mega qualified, but that company just sent them the rejection email right away. And I was a little shocked by that because, you know, they're probably overqualified for what that job is, which leads me to think that a lot of these, these long time postings that are open for, for several months, especially in this economy, uh, either don't pay enough, which could be the case, but probably is a lack of understanding of what they're really looking for. And when they see these resumes come in, it might they might have a little bit of confusion either at the recruiting level um, or at the hiring manager. But I would assume it's at the recruiting level because that's probably it's just not passing the screening there. Now, I don't know how everybody's system is. I use Workday. I've used Workday at the last several companies. Uh, so I can go in at any time myself personally and see any any open position that's open under me. I can see the resumes that are coming in there. So I would like typically go in and, and browse around a little bit and see what's in there. But if you're relying on, on your recruiting to, to do that fulfillment for you and, and pass you the resumes, uh, if you don't have exactly what, if you're not very clear on your job posting of what you're really looking for, and you have just some wacky stuff that isn't really what the day-to-day job is going to be. Like how many times have you ever been on an interview at, and what they have listed in the the job rec is not really what they're going to have you doing. Like they're they, like a senior <laughs> level position. They're probably. like, they're like, you need to be fighting chargebacks all day. And it's like, are you sure? Because it's just, <laughs> yeah. I know you got like 30 people doing chargebacks over there. So, yeah. but there's also an interesting thing. I saw a lot of job descriptions for fraud executives say a PhD in mathematics or PhD in computer science. I'm like, I don't have PhD in mathematics. I mean, Great, you can do all calculations and I don't Sounds know, expensive. create some great programs. Yeah. But do you know what to do with them? If you don't know, don't have knowledge of fraud trends and fraud industry, you can be a super great PhD genius mathematician. Yeah. If you don't know what to do with those rules or anything else that you create and any, any statistics. So I always I, I had one of the interviews quite some time ago at the bank where I was um asked for the knowledge of specific software. I said I don't have knowledge of that software. Don't you have people that do that? I mean, I am not an analyst person. I don't know how to do some of these. Um, co- I don't know how to do coding. I don't know how to create some of these reports. But hey, I know how to use them. I know how to read them. And I know how to Im- use that information and prevent fraud from happening because I know how fraud looks like. And they did tell me, you can't go through like 30,000 data fields or data rows and determine where the fraud is. I said, yes, I can, because I know what I'm looking for. It's not like I'm going to be looking at every single piece of these 30,000 rows. Yeah. I know exactly what I'm looking for, and I know how fraud looks like. So um, it is interesting that I've seen job description that if I would do job scans, I wouldn't probably match 20% to any of those. And I've been doing this for 20 plus years. Yeah, I always think it's funny, too, when I see like these these companies that have these, these postings up for a really long time. Um, like I even in the past of like one of them I had applied for, they turned me down, which I mean, no, no, no harm, no foul. Like I'm not saying I'm the greatest in the world, but I definitely was qualified for their position. Uh, so I was a little caught off guard. And this was like, don't and everybody. I'm super happy at my company. This wasn't like anything that was because of this company. It was it was in the before times. Uh, so at this company, though, like I was very clear in my interview, like I got recruited. At, I heard like they 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 were very nice to recruit me. Uh and I was very clear, though, in that entire process, the things that I do do and the things that I don't do. 
And they were very clear back with me about the expectations that they wanted. So they had a really, really, really good idea here of exactly what they wanted from the position. And it happened to be exactly what I do and what I wanted to do. Like I, I'm, I'm really into the strategy thing right now and looking at the long term. And they were had a lot of buy-in on my ideas. So I think there was there was a really good fit there. But in the past, you know, like I've I've just set my resume off to one of these companies that I think they had they're posting up for damn near a year now. Uh, probably this was right before I even started here and uh, they're still hiring. They still like people message me about, about interviewing there. And I'm just, I warn them every single time that it's probably a waste of your time because they're, they don't know what they're looking for. You know. So what do you think needs to happen for this to change? Um, I think that one of the things that will help is, is these, this education and certification pieces, because then you'll be able to say what it, what it has, but I think there needs to be an expectation for, hiring managers that are not in our industry of what our industry does. Like there needs to be some sort of um, framework like put out to like these, these glass doors or these indeeds about what fraud people actually do. And you don't need a master's in statistics because first of all, it's super expensive unless you're actually literally <laughs> being a data scientist. Like you don't need that for a manager role. Like if you're hiring like a director level or above position for a fraud team, like you should have underneath that person or adjacent to that person, a product person that's going to help them build it. That's going to work with those individual developers over on the other side, on the engineering side. You should have people that are running your fraud and your chargebacks teams that have a pretty good idea, supervisor manager roles. Like the, the director level and above position like shouldn't exist if you want someone to be in the tool, writing rules and responding to chargebacks because you're paying way too much for somebody to be doing that. If your company isn't big enough to have one of those people yet, then you don't need one. You can get a manager. You can get a supervisor. You, know? you can have regular people doing it. You don't have to have a director at every single company you know, but if you're going to have one, make sure that like you have the rest of the people underneath them to do it. And I think that it needs to come down to having a very specific set of framework. That's like a general guideline of this is what a fraud person does. This is what a fraud manager does. This is what a fraud director does. Boom, 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 boom. And put them out everywhere so that when these, these, these recruiting agencies or these, these people that are trying to like find the buzzwords in in their postings exactly. get the right the right people and not stuff that just is like oh yeah you know i saw an engineering role that i put up the other day it said you need to 15 years of sql experience let's just throw that in there like why wouldn't you need that you know you must you must know python in order to be able to do this like yeah i've seen those too. you know like and i understand that I like don't. coming with python knowledge would be helpful if you're doing if you're doing any of this database stuff but like it's not necessary like you, you you should be able to find somebody at your company that does like i have a bi team here i think any large company has a bi exactly. team if i ask them for business intelligence data i'm going to get it you know exactly and that's what i think you need to find someone who knows fraud and who knows how to that's... implement or understand the statistics and that data and implement make changes depending I think, on it like there, it goes the whole other way is i think there's also people that are in this industry that have been in this industry for so long and they've been so comfortable that they haven't bothered to learn and adapt with the times so there are people in this industry that have high titles but don't have the actual knowledge to do any of this like yeah which leads me to on another point i think there has to be kind of a set expectation where fraud sits within organization you can just put fraud in i don't know customer service yeah i've seen it everywhere you know like right now i, 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 I sit, I sit yeah. under finance and treasury right now 
which is, I think is, is fine. But like even at Ticketmaster, I was under the commercial team. Uh, I've been under customer service at Fandango. So I've been everywhere. Usually I, I wind up more in the finance team, but I will say that like you wind up with, with people that like, yeah, that don't necessarily know, but I'm very, very fortunate at my last few companies that my bosses are be like, they don't pre pretend to be an expert. They look at me and they say, Hey, you're the expert you can tell me what I need to be knowing and what I should be, how I should be interpreting this. And, and that's when you get that's very like, fortunate position yeah, to be in. Yeah. And I, and I'm fortunate that I'm able to instill that trust in my decisions and my results Absolutely. with my management team. So they don't ever have to second guess me. They just, they just trust me. And it's been, it's been successful. And I, and I think that I'm very fortunate that I've been my, my last couple of companies specifically have been very empowering to me. And then, and, and, have just let me lead the way that I need to lead, you know, but at the same time, like I, I mean, coming back to that thing, like, I still think that there's like, I, I call them frauds in the fraud industry, but there are people <laughs> that like pretend like they're Imposters. experts and they, and they tell everybody that they're experts. But when you really peel back the layers, like they have, they'll be like, what's a chargeback or what, what are payments? They have like no basic understanding of, of, of what, how payments work and how it leads to chargeback no basic understanding of the reason codes of chargebacks. They've just been in like these management positions for so long and they've always had successful people underneath them that like when they change companies or they try to do something new, like they get overwhelmed with responsibility and actually having to do and having to have the knowledge. And it, it, it's, it's interesting to see. I've only seen it happen a few times in this industry, but what's that old um, saying that like you get promoted to the, your level of incompetence, you know? And I think that that's true. Like I, I'm scared. Of, I'm, I'm eventually going to hit it myself. I don't claim to be the best, you know, I, I don't, even though my mugs say number one front fighter, if anybody wants to uh, buy some merch, that's really? just, that's really? just, that's funny because of my ego. You know what I mean? Because ah, every, okay. everybody always says I, I am arrogant <laughs> and, uh, Maybe, but I just thought it was funny to put it on the mug, you know, to, to play. I always into say this. you are like one of those um, younger brother that you have that you just want sometimes want to slap and hey. say, "Hey, and, stop and it now." <laughs> we all we, the industry always needs what you know, and we always okay. need a, a scapegoat, you know. And, and I'm happy to be that guy because, uh, you know, eventually I, I think that people do cry useful nuggets from all of my overload of content that I put out there into the world definitely unique and interesting yeah so i think that we got through most of our little notes here and i think that that was a pretty dang good uh good interview that you got there sorry everybody about being all about me and this being the jordan episode but you know <laughs> that just happens sometimes uh i hope that you guys um didn't take it as seriously as as because it's not meant to be a serious episode it's meant to be more of a light-hearted fun episode uh, just so people could get to know me, you know, people listen to this, they really do. So I want people to know the man behind Mike and Diana, you always have been very good at, um, at interviewing me and asking me probing <laughs> questions. So you did an excellent job today. So thank you very much for doing that. So I think there were some interesting fraud related conversations here too. That's hopefully, um, listeners can take and maybe implement some changes on their end and thank yeah. you so much for having me definitely it's been a pleasure i didn't know about giraffes i knew about guitars i, but I didn't know the level of uh, your skills i guess as far as guitar playing so yeah i wouldn't necessarily call them skills you know but uh i definitely fake it till i make it you know but it, it's the sounds that are coming out are, are getting better and they're getting okay, pretty good, good. So. <laughs> so you're going in the right direction yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. So thanks, thanks for being a guest again, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye.